how do we, in our lifetime, in the present moment, how do we inculcate death? How do we notice and invite in and celebrate endings? How do we withstand the emotions that come up when something that is beloved to us has a natural end? How do we not resort to defending against that? How do we let in feelings that are probably echoes of bigger emotions that will come to us later in our life? Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author, and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 33. I once had the opportunity to meet the mayor of Alsace. This is a region in eastern France where the Alsatian language is pretty well dead. And he spoke to me about a book that he had written which talked about endings. He wanted to explore the idea of a beautiful end. Today's podcast, in some ways, will be about me deciding to pause the podcast potentially end it for a while and take some time to restore my own creative energies. This idea of a beautiful end never left me. It has guided me in many parts of my life when I have decided to end certain careers or move on from certain jobs. It has always felt important to really pay attention to what was driving me and in many ways to block out other people's perceptions, any kind of normative or collective ideas of what I should or shouldn't do. So welcome to this year's last installment as we head into the holiday season and a podcast where I'll take some time to open up with you and explore what it means to end things, and some of my thoughts on why this is often the hardest thing, but a very important thing that we must do. What's made it a bit more difficult is all of the warm and encouraging feedback that I receive, and also the support. Yeah. I want to, in particular, thank Veronica Lacks, who recently donated to the podcast. She talked about this series on shame, and she very lovingly said that 
it seemed to her like supervision and she felt compelled to support the podcast and that meant the world to me. And I also want to thank Anna Singer for your lovely feedback, especially about the musical podcast that I did a few weeks back. As always, if you like the podcast, please rate it. Please talk about it. It's going to exist in this space forever, as long as podcasts exist online. And I'm hopeful to return in the new year with a new series, which I will announce with guests that I think can shed light on important areas in our lives. Many of you will have heard of the quite famous Canadian analyst, Marion Woodman. She passed away a few years ago, but she was iconic. She eventually spent a lot of time in California in the women's movement, wrote a number of best-selling books. One of them is called Leaving My Father's House. Another one's called The Ravaged Bride. And she also worked a lot in Switzerland and really was a founder of, of the body movement, of moving psychotherapy from just a talking space to really explicitly getting into our bodies and, and moving. And I was once sitting in one of her lectures, and she said, the greatest affront to the ego is the self. And in that sentence, she's referring to the capital S self, which was a concept of Carl Gustav Jung's, which really talked about the kind of complete and whole repository of the human being, which included the unconscious and parts of us that we can't consciously access. And the ego was often tethered to the self, but could at various points in our life move away from or become dissociated from the self so that we sometimes come out of contact with this rich repository of who we are. And for me, this always connects with this Greek idea of chronos and kairos. Chronos being time that we are aware of, such as looking at one's watch and knowing that it is one in the afternoon, and kairos representing a kind of other time that we are unaware of. It also makes me think of Wolfgang Gigris' concept, this is a German philosopher, of the soul's logical life. So that there is a kind of logic in our lives that confronts our conscious awareness. And so we may make decisions to do something, to go somewhere, to plan a trip, or to study a subject. And we may think everything is going to go in a particular way. And of course, as we know, life intervenes. There's that very cute expression which exists in many languages. The one I know is in Yiddish, which is metracht und Gott lacht. One thinks and God laughs, or one plans and God laughs. And I know that recently, in terms of building this podcast, bringing on guests that have really touched me and reaching out to you 
am delving into subject areas that are very close to my heart, this is something that I've done out of love. But I can also tell that it has come to a natural end for now. And there's been a conflict there in the same way that I'm describing to you between a kind of expectation that I set for myself and that others have had for me and an internal rhythm that is certainly demanding that I take a break. And I think that these moments are quite unnerving, or at least they are for me, when you kind of build something or you have a particular architecture and there are other voices that are swimming around that begin to grow in power and clarity that sort of go against a kind of conscious essay, as we say in French, or a conscious attempt in life. Carl Jung was quite adamant that if we ignore these parts of ourselves, we will get sick. That's in many ways what he felt neurosis was, that if we don't really listen to these niggling voices that are within us, the cracks in our armor, then eventually we start to feel kind of out of sorts. And he had this image, like a swell in the water where the, the water is swirling around and it is trying to get free. I recently listened to a great lecture that really clarified a certain idea for me. And the lecturer, who's a German psychiatrist and psychotherapist, was wondering out loud why there is such resentment against a practice as intense, for instance, as psychoanalysis, and why the world has moved in many ways in psychology towards a kind of more material approach. You know, a lot of the stuff that we do on social media, sound bites, kind of very quick ways of trying to address our issues, and a resentment or a, a kind of denial that to really go into these areas requires a kind of in-depth process. And he framed it in such a way that he said that the existence of a psychic reality alongside a material reality is very anxiety-provoking, that we live very much in a, a material world. We're just coming off of Black Friday and Cyber Monday and these incredible kind of economic placeholders in our lives. And I'm in Sweden, where, of course, American Thanksgiving is not celebrated. It has nothing to do with Sweden, aside from some peripheral wishes that we might send to our American friends. And yet, the materialism that has evolved from how the capitalistic framework has centered around these holidays pervades even our economy here. And so you walk around Stockholm and there are Black Friday or Black Week sales. And to pull away from this, especially in a culture like Sweden, which is not a 24-7 culture, if there's one way that this culture is defined 
differently from other cultures in the world is that there are very strong boundaries that are still in place here in the market. Things close quite early. Stores often close for the holidays and there's no way around it. You don't have the kind of 24-7 culture where something should be available to you at any given moment. And that's really been on my mind lately in thinking about one's energy or my own energy and and how do we differentiate ourselves from the collective and how do we bring our own idiosyncratic rhythm out into the open. I think at the heart of so much of the psychotherapy that I do is a relentless attempt to zero in on the subjectivity of the individual. I know I'm focusing quite a bit on Jung today, and interestingly enough, even though I studied him for most of my life, I don't think he's come in in a very dramatic way in this podcast, but he has a lot to offer in this regard. And probably he's coming up because these ideas have really been at the foundation of how I've governed my own career as I've evolved as a clinician and now as a public speaker. And he had this beautiful idea about individuation. He talked about how when we individuate, we have to suffer the disdain of the other. So when we really put ourselves out there in a way that goes against or is a counterpoint to the collective rhythm, we have to suffer the disdain and the disappointment and the disbelief and the contrary views of other people. He didn't mean that we leave society or we just go and burrow into a hole and don't come back. He felt that when we individuate or we leave, we are mining for something other, something that in our own subjective way, we then bring back into the culture. But without these kinds of boundaries and without really mustering the strength to unplug from collective ideals, we will never have enough oxygen, enough room within ourselves to really bring to fruition these parts of us that may otherwise be drowned out by the noise of the collective. And I think it's a very serious idea that persists and is very relevant. And we all talk about it. We all talk about the bombardment of ideas and perspectives and noise that we are constantly receiving. I mean, you think about the way that advertisers have had to adapt to the digital landscape. And maybe now when we watch something, you know, we used to be able to kind of fast forward through commercials. But now, of course, when you watch YouTube or other means, they found ways to sort of insist that that you're sitting there when you're being advertised to. And so there's a kind of way that our attention can get monopolized. I mean, there's a return for that, of course, if we're consuming content that somebody has put money and, and time into. I mean, I've at certain points in this podcast, you know, made mention of things that I'm doing, such as my book on my website. 
<laughs> which you can buy if you want to get someone a Christmas present or a Hanukkah present. But you know, I, I've always felt a certain ambivalence even about that mechanism in some ways and the kind of algorithm that I think we often feel where you're you're going to do something and all of a sudden there are pop-ups and things getting in our way. And and there's something, you know, a bit psychotic about that actually. There's a very interesting idea, which is that historically, one of the ways that we knew somebody might be in trouble emotionally or mentally is if they felt erroneously that people were out to get them. So for instance, if you're assessing somebody in the hospital, one of the standard lines of questioning is, do you think the TV is is sending you messages? Do you think the newspaper is sending you messages? Do you think that your neighbor wants to hurt you? And forgive me for getting a little bit morbid here, but I'm trying to make a point. Now that these algorithms are in place, which when you browse the internet or even when you ask Alexa or Google for something, somewhere in there, you signed on to sometimes give permission for them to track your preferences. And the next thing you know, when you open your browser, that thing you were looking for has generated a number of advertisements you know, in your area or things that you can buy online. And historically, if somebody actually came and said, oh, I think the TV is watching me, that would have been a sign for further exploration that somebody perhaps is mentally ill. Now, the fact that there's a kind of algorithm that is listening to us and then coming into a feedback loop about things that we desire and reinforcing that, that's a very standard part of our life. And it's quite intrusive. You know, it, it may reinforce, for instance, a fleeting idea that one has, and all of a sudden this algorithm is trying to exploit a fantasy or a thought. So it becomes very material, becomes very extroverted. The energy is kind of fed back to us. And so I could understand how it might be harder then to pull oneself out of that, especially if one starts to feel like one's world is reflecting a kind of, you know, subtle inner fantasy that one has. And so in some ways, what I'm circumambulating around in this podcast is this tension, which is not a new idea whatsoever. This is quite an old idea between what we feel as an individual and what the collective wants. And at the beginning of this podcast, I referenced this gentleman in, in France who talked to me about endings. And he was trying to create space for what was the very real end of the Alsatian language. And he was putting forth an idea that there can be a beautiful end, that things don't persist forever. And this is a theme that I have come back to time and time again in this podcast of this idea of how do we, in our lifetime, in the present moment, how do we inculcate death? How do we notice and invite in and celebrate 
endings. How do we withstand the emotions that come up when something that is beloved to us has a natural end? How do we not resort to defending against that? How do we let in feelings that are probably echoes of bigger emotions that will come to us later in our life? And it's an important idea, I think. I think it's an idea that's actually connected to the environmental crisis, to climate change, to our desire for things not to end, for our desire for new things. The fact that products that are created have a very short life cycle now. I once met a gentleman who had just come back from Las Vegas. He owns a big appliance store near our cottage. And he opened up with me and told me that in Las Vegas, they were trying to get people used to a cycle of three years with their appliances, fridges, dishwashers, phones. Think about how long you would have had your phone, if you're my age, (laughs) at home. You might have a phone that's there for 20 years. Now, after three years, a cell phone becomes obsolete. And where does it end up? Well, we know there's a huge island of plastic in the ocean, e-waste. And I'm not an angel when it comes to this, but I think it's tied to it's tied to this kind of idea that that when something dies or becomes obsolete, it brings a kind of emptiness in us and People are there to exploit that, to to want to give us a sense of renewal. And so there's something important here about listening to moments when there is an end and, and there doesn't have to be a new beginning. There is an end and there doesn't have to be a new beginning. The fact that something ends is not a failure. This is a very different idea than one that we take for granted, the kind of phoenix rising from the ashes, this idea, well, when one door closes, a new one opens. In some ways, these maxims are a bit defensive. On the surface, you might hang that on your wall, put that in a Hallmark card, try to make somebody feel better. Yeah, well... Something else will come, (laughs) but maybe not. And can we withstand the possibility that something else might not come without jumping in to soothe somebody with some platitude that things will get better? I know some of you might be saying, well, why wouldn't you say that to somebody? And I'm just wondering out loud whether there might be a greater strength in inviting in the idea that there can be a beautiful end, and that in some ways, for us to be able to accept the end of something, the loss of somebody, the end of a chapter in our lives, we have to at least be open to the idea that in and of itself, the ending is whole. It doesn't need anything else. It doesn't need comfort that something else will be next. 
that may be a kind of denial. And it may also rob us of the richness of the end, which I've struggled in my life to do, to sort of treat the knowledge that something needs to come to completion as complete and without any sense that something wrong has happened, but rather that something inevitable was always there from the beginning without going into some kind of manic attempt to avoid the emptiness that one feels and perhaps the joy one also feels at having seen something through. So for those of you that have been on this ride with me this year, I am really grateful. And you don't know what it means when you write and make a comment and talk about how this podcast reached you. It is an intense, warm feeling of satisfaction. And so I'm sending you all my best wishes. Take some time for yourselves over the holidays. I plan on doing that myself. And if you haven't written to me before, if you've been here and perhaps just been listening, and please don't hesitate. You can find me on Instagram at I am Mitchell Smolkin. You can send me an email, info at mitchellsmolkin.com. You can also go to my website, and there's tons of information, articles, past podcasts, interviews that I've done there. Signing off for now, and I remain faithfully yours. <laughs> <laughs>